0: R.D. Talks, brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. An Amazing Arrival by Helen Signy. A tumour threatened the life of the unborn baby. To save her, doctors would need a careful and brave plan. It was a relatively quiet Friday afternoon on the labour ward at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital when obstetrician Dr Ranuka Secker took the call. A young mother-to-be, Chantelle Arden, had turned up to Nambour Hospital, about an hour north of Brisbane, with stomach pains and contractions. The 21-year-old was 29 weeks pregnant and she was terrified. An ultrasound taken earlier that week because she was growing so big had shown a massive tumour at the back of her baby's nose, filling its entire mouth. Secker listened intently. With 20 years experience delivering babies, first in her native India and then in New Zealand before she arrived in Australia, she had never come across a case like it. She would delivered babies with tumors, but as she listened to her colleague in Nambour describe the case, she realized that once born and separated from its mother's oxygen supply, the baby wouldn't be able to breathe. The dark-haired diminutive secker arranged that Chantal be stabilized and then transferred to Brisbane. Meanwhile, she set to work searching the online medical literature for the latest treatment options. In recent years, doctors in the US had pioneered a technique to operate on foetuses with respiratory obstructions before the baby is fully delivered. In the ex utero intrapartum or exit procedure, only the baby's head is lifted out of the mother during the caesarean section. An ear, nose and throat ENT surgeon works on correcting the abnormality while the baby is still attached to the umbilical cord and functioning placenta and receiving vital oxygen through the mother's blood. Only once it is able to breathe independently is the baby fully born. This procedure had been attempted only a handful of times before in Australia. Seca knew it was risky, both to the mother and child. There was a risk Chantelle could haemorrhage and bleed to death because of the drugs she'd have to be given to keep her baby still during the operation. For the baby, a drop in oxygen levels during the surgery could mean permanent brain damage. Still, it was their best hope. Meanwhile, there was an immediate problem. All foetuses swallow amniotic fluid while they're in the womb to practice breathing, but the tumour was blocking Chantelle's baby's throat. Her amniotic fluid was building dramatically, putting pressure on her uterus. At just 29 weeks, the baby was dangerously immature. Chantelle's early labour had to be stopped. The longer they could delay the delivery, the better for everyone. Seca hurried in after Chantelle arrived by ambulance. The obstetrician called the ENT registrar and tipped off the neonatal team, but in the pit of her stomach she knew that if Chantelle went into labour at this point, there would be little they could do for her baby. Fearing an emergency birth, Seca gave Chantelle steroids to boost the baby's lungs. "'Please just let us get through tonight,' Seca whispered to herself. On Monday morning, as Chantelle was being wheeled off to have an MRI scan, ENT surgeon Dr. Hannah Burns studied the notes. A highly experienced specialist with an interest in paediatric airway disorders, she anxiously read up on the details. The growth was most likely a teratoma, a benign tumour made up of all the different cells and tissue types in the body. This was positive news. It would not have invaded other organs. Burns would need to perform a tracheostomy, inserting a tiny plastic tube directly into the baby's windpipe. Once fully born, the baby could then be connected to a ventilator and monitored closely until strong enough for more surgery. It was a scary prospect, but it was also exciting. Burns knew that, if the delicate surgery went as planned, it would have a wonderful outcome for the tiny baby. She assembled the team of more than 20 needed for the birth – obstetricians, surgeons, nurses, anaesthetists and neonatal specialists. In the run-through, they would work out the delicate choreography of where each would stand and how they would negotiate the monitors, transfusion equipment, gas machines and other medical paraphernalia that would crowd the room. Then everyone was instructed to keep their pages handy, ready to rush into the hospital if they were needed. But luck was on everyone's side. Chantelle and her baby stabilised. Each day was a bonus at this point. As one week edged into two and then three and four... An experienced team was on call every night in case there was an emergency, but that never happened. When Chantel made it to 34 weeks, SECA was confident they could operate. Early on April 18, 2012, anaesthetist Dr. Makala Stead put her head around Chantel's door to find an anxious mother waiting to go into theatre. We're here to look after you, Stead soothed her. There are all these people here to look after your baby, but my job is to look after you. Stead cleared the theatre and put an oxygen mask over Chantelle's face. It would be a challenging time for the anaesthetists. As well as monitoring Chantelle, they must ensure the baby stayed still for the delicate surgery. If the worst happened and Chantelle started to haemorrhage, it would be up to Stead to call a halt to the operation and save the mother's life. The young woman drifted off as the anaesthetic entered her arm and the team of specialists took up their places. During every caesarean, no matter how routine, Seca would count through the precise steps in her mind. The previous night she had spent hours going over and over the procedure in her head. Now she took a deep breath and walked into the theatre. First she scanned Chantelle's belly with the ultrasound so she knew exactly where the placenta lay, then put her hand at what she knew was the edge of the blood-rich tissue to guide her scalpel as she made the cut. As clear amniotic fluid spilled out, Sekka scanned again, then gently reached inside the womb with her right hand to scoop out the baby's head. Taking great care not to pull too hard in case the rest of the body slipped out, she lifted the head clear of Chantelle's belly. The massive tumour spilt from the baby's tiny mouth and nose, a mass of dark pink flesh almost obscuring the entire face. There was no room to attach a monitor, so Sekka kept her other hand on the umbilical cord to make sure it wasn't squeezed or twisted and to make sure there was a pulse, that the mother's oxygen was keeping the baby alive. In a well-rehearsed move, Seca shuffled down a few centimetres toward Chantel's head, so Burns could work. The baby was tiny for her gestation and obviously very sick. Seconds ticked past. Seca put her finger on the baby's chest to feel its heart rate. I haven't got much time here, thought Burns. This is totally doable, but I have to work quickly. All the while, Stead studied the beeping monitors, listening intently for changes in the tone that would tell her if Chantelle needed help. Then, unexpectedly, the tiny baby began to wriggle. A dose of anaesthetic eased the infant back to sleep. Gently, Burns extended the baby's neck so she could feel its windpipe. Then she made a small cut and inserted the tiny tracheostomy tube as wide as the baby's little finger. Five minutes after the exit procedure started, the baby started to turn pink. She was breathing on her own. Instantly the mood in the theatre lifted. Seca was cleared to deliver the rest of the baby, a girl, and cut the cord. Then Stead pumped in medication to contract the uterus and reduce the chance of a bleed. Meanwhile the neonatal team rushed the baby to the next door theatre. There had been so many people crowded around the mother that neonatalist Dr Peter Kortz hadn't been able to see the unborn baby before. Her lungs were more like those of a premature baby born at 24 to 25 weeks than a baby of 34 weeks gestation. They were also lacking surfactant, a liquid that coats the inside of the lungs and keeps them open. The neonatal team put emergency lines into the baby's belly button, a fast way of getting access to a vein when there's no time to insert an IV. They helped her breathe through the tracheostomy with a bag and mask until they could connect her to a ventilator. They also gave her a good dose of surfactant to help her lungs inflate. As they worked frantically for 45 minutes to stabilise the baby, Chantelle gradually began to wake. It went well, Secker assured her. A week later, baby Hannah was well enough to be wheeled with her ventilator to the Royal Children's Hospital Brisbane, where the tumour, now swollen to the size of a man's fist, was carefully removed. With such underdeveloped lungs, she still needed specialised ventilation, Later, Hannah developed chylothorax, a condition where the chest cavity fills with lymph fluid. She also had to fight an infection and serious problems with her heart. But after 70 days in intensive care, then another three weeks on the ward, Hannah was ready to go home. Today, she can breathe and feed normally. In quiet moments, Seka still flicks through pictures on her iPhone of Chantel and her baby Hannah. The exit procedure was a surgical triumph, she knows. But the biggest marvel is knowing that a little girl that once had the odds stacked against her now had every chance of a normal life. That was the most rewarding thing, she says. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.